Well, is it summer's last hurrah this weekend? It is, isn't it? Kind of a bummer. How many are sad to see summer go? I'm kind of a summer person myself. Born and raised in Arizona, so it's always summer there compared to other places. So uh, I love the warmth and the heat. And how many know somebody who got out of town this weekend? How many wish that you were with them? (laughs) That's right. It's good to be with you, though. I'm glad that you came. You know, if the rapture occurs today, you get to go straight from church. And that will forever be the case when you're in heaven. You know that you're... It's a joke, all right? You can loosen up. It's Labor Day, all right? And uh, anyway, you get to go straight to heaven from church, and forever that will be the case. And the, uh, those who are on vacation today and didn't get up to go to church might be on the beach, and they'll go to heaven. But then they'll, you know, there'll be that conversation in line, you know, wherever we're going. It's like, well, where were you when, you know, after Kurt, well, I was, I was at the beach. Oh, I was at church. So it's always good to be there, all the more as you see the day approaching. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word. <laughs> it's appropriate today, I think. Turn your, copy, <laughs> turn, your, turn your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 13. Would you do that? As Alex said, uh, we spent some time worshiping in music, worshiping in prayer, in giving. And we worship the Lord in the reading and the assimilation and, and doing of His Word. And so, uh, this is obedience to Him. This is love to Him that we obey His commands. His commands, First John says, are not burdensome. So God's not out there to rain on your parade. He says obedience to his commands is a response of love to us. Why? Because that's self-sacrificing, isn't it? It's, it's exchanging what you want to do for what the Lord wants you to do. And so it's a, a form of expression to the Lord. So it goes right in with what we've been talking about. Now, if you are new this morning, and I don't think there are many, if there are, we're in the middle of a section of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, instructing them on conduct in the church. We have uh, spent several weeks now examining the work of the Holy Spirit in the church through spiritual gifts. And we noted some things that Paul, uh, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, has turned his attention to, particularly at the end of chapter 12. It's this. The highest gifts, the most noteworthy business, uh, the most important activities, uh, they are worth nothing if love's absent. That's a pretty significant statement, isn't it? Because we perhaps have a long history of doing a whole bunch of stuff. And maybe we're really good at that, and maybe we can multitask, and we do a lot of stuff inside the church, and whatever our, the case may be. But the fact of the matter is that Paul's pretty clear, the highest gifts, the most noteworthy business, the most important activities, regardless of what they are and what spiritual gifting they are, all amount to nothing if love's absent. And Paul isn't talking about worldly love. He's not talking about, well, I feel good about that person. I have a, a, a good emotion about that person, a strong feeling, because he uses the same word that has to do with enemies. See, so that kind of excludes all that feeling stuff because you don't feel warm and fuzzy towards your enemy and your enemy doesn't feel warm and fuzzy towards you. And yet your response to them is supposed to be one of self-sacrificing love. And so we we can kind of clear that up. It doesn't talk about the worldly type of love. Biblical love based on the will is what we're talking about. To love somebody in terms of an act of self-sacrifice, it's not a feeling. It is uh, a determination that you make in your mind, not a a self-righteous type of determination. It's just this. This is what God has told me to do. This is what I will do. And as I submit myself to the will of God through his word and understand what he has to say, my thought processes are going to change. And we'll go over that here in just a minute. But uh, Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this uh, will men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, he says this. And we'll look at this verse a little later on because we haven't broken it down. 
It's very important. Above all things, so everything that you could be doing, as Peter addresses the church, of all the different activities you could be involved in, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now, once again, it's not warm, fuzzy feelings towards each other. Okay? It is an act of self-sacrifice, and we're going to see some of those attributes, patience and and, uh, kindness and those kinds of things here in just a minute. So, above all things, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, so, not only is it... uh, commanded by Jesus, not only is it the indicating factor of Christianity, and not only are we supposed to enthusiastically and zealously pursue it to cover over the sins of others against us, but it's a volitional act. If we're going to do the work of God, we have to do it his way, and when we're talking about the spiritual gifts functioning in the church, that's what we're talking about. Love is an act of humility. I want to meet your need. I want to do what God wants me to do. There's no self-seeking there, there's no pride, there's no selfishness, no self-glory, there's no vanity there, see? It's a volitional response that says, Holy Spirit, control me today, take over my life, I want, what Christ, I want Christ to live through me. And then the time and the word that you spend will begin to change your thought process, and so you can begin to do this. And then the fruit of love will begin to be there and applied to in your service to other people, and the fruit of the Spirit is, now remember, the fruit of the Spirit, as we looked a number of months ago, the fruit of the Spirit is the indicating factor that someone's spiritual, okay? Not how much time you spent on a board, not how much time you've taught Sunday school, not how much time you, or you have been saved, not how much you monetarily may give. Those are not the indicating factors of spirituality. You can do those things in the flesh. The indicating factor of spirituality is that you have the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is, begins with love. Okay, so, and if love is so important then, and we understand this, I think, as we look at these passages and we kind of cross-reference through the word, and we can't do anything without love, and we're to love like Jesus loved, and it's the main way people can tell that we're believers, is how we love each other, and we're to, above all things and everything else we could do, uh, fervently pursue expressions of love to one another uh, in order to forgive their offenses toward you. And the Holy Spirit will produce love as you yield yourself to him through his word. And if it's the more excellent way and spiritual gifts are, can only function in the spirit uh, with these uh, fruits of the spirit. And if, if everything else is functioning in the flesh without the deeds of love. And we can't minister any gifts without love. And we're supposed to abound in it. And we're supposed to continue in it and be sincere in it. Provoke one another to it. And we can only be noise without love. And we can only be nothing without love. Then the question is, could you tell me what love is? If that's how important it is, and if we have to have it, show us what it looks like. And that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And his first three verses deal with the outcome of spiritual gifts functioning in the absence of love. Jesus kind of sums this up for us. He says in verse 1, look there in your copy of God's word. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So, if you have all the spirit-given ability right there, but you don't minister it in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, you can really do nothing. The best speech on earth and on heaven is without love is noise. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, I know all mysteries, all knowledge, I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. So you have all that spirit-given ability, all those gifts that have been important to the church since its founding. I have all faith so I can remove mountains, I... I I, ha- I can understand all mysteries, all that kind of stuff, but you don't minister that, that in a self-sacrificing way for the common good, then you are nothing. See, And if I, verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You can do uh, both of those things. You can give 
everything you have away, and you can even give up your life for some uh, very important, if you will, uh, thing that's in your life, some important thing that you've deemed worthy enough. You can do all that, but you can do it apart from love. You'll have nothing to show for your generosity. So self-seeking acts on behalf of others is the way things are to be done. And then verse 4 through 7, Paul looks at the situation then where love is present. So the first three verses where love is absent kind of sums up everything you could be doing and makes it a big zero. And then he goes to verses 4 through 7 and he defines it even more and shows where love is present. Now look at verse 4. Love is patient, it says. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, and is not arrogant. Now you can read your name in place of love, see, and understand the fullest meaning. Because love is presented as the subject. It indicates a person and you're that person. So just put your name in there where love is. Do it in that first verse 4, okay? Read your own name there quietly in your own heart. Now, if you imagine yourself in the passage, ask the question, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, what will the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit be in my life? And then read that verse and begin to see what that's supposed to look like. Because we know what your sum will be if you don't have it. So what will it look like then if you do? Now, as you see, love is patient. That macrothermeo, the verb, like most of them, is in the present active indicative. We went over that before. The present tense, it's a current condition, a habitual attitude, a lifestyle of patience. The active voice indicates you're initiating this action. Self-sacrificing action of patience that happens to be the case in your life. And that indicative mood is the reality, see? This is the reality of your life. This is indicative of your life, if you will. If you, if you are patient, that's indicative that love is there. You get that? That's important. And 20, more than 20,000 commands in the New Testament are in that present active indicative. What's that mean? That is the reality of the life of a believer. It's not a separate tier of really great Christians, and they all aspire to this. This is the reality of the life of a believer. So you need to read that that way. Love is patient. Well, I hope to be patient. No, love is patient. And if you're not, then love is absent. That's how you have to read it. Very, very matter of fact. Okay? You bear long. You suffer long. You persevere patiently, you persevere bravely, you endure misfortunes and troubles in your circumstances, that's patience. You're patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others, we're going to look at that more because Paul deals with that further on. You're mild and slow in avenging, another word for it is to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. We saw those, those types of behaviors mimic the way the Lord deals with people last week. And then we saw love is kind, Christumi. It's an occurrence in the verb in the New Testament. It's only found here. Paul probably coined this word. And again, if you imagine yourself in the passage and you ask yourself the question, if I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, what will the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit be in my life? It will be that you are continually and habitually, as a pattern of your life, doing kind deeds. See, You are doing these self-sacrificing deeds for the benefit of others. That is your reality. It's indicative of your life. That's how it works. You're patient. And you're kind. Patience is an attitude and response to other people. Kindness is an action. They're both actions because they both, re- they both are responses. But kindness is an action where you are actually doing acts of kindness to other people. And so we can see how serious this is. This is what love does. This is what love looks like. Patience and kindness are key actions at the core of love's expression. Now, these next eight things that love doesn't do are precisely the things that the Corinthian church was doing. Let's pick up on the first three. Look at chapter four, or chapter 13, verse 4. It says this. And is not jealous, see where we are, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. 
So whereas jealousy wants someone what's what someone else has, bragging tries to make someone want what you have, and arrogance is the idea of haughtiness. It's the blowing up or the overinflating of the differences between people. So Paul says this, there's no room in the life of the believer for these behaviors. You can have all the best gifts and the fullest expression of those gifts, but if your actions are actions of jealousy and bragging and arrogance, then your work adds up to nothing. Okay, so see how he defines that even more clearly? If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love. Now we know what love begins to look like, okay, and what it doesn't look like. And if I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I don't, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, now we begin to know what love looks like and what it doesn't contain. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, what does love look like? Well, love is patient and love is kind. It isn't jealous, it doesn't brag, and it isn't arrogant. So now we really can define this pretty clearly. It's not self-defined. Paul doesn't leave it open for interpretation there. This is what it looks like. Now look at verse 5, if you would. Now love is the antecedent here. Okay, So every time you see it, you can read Love, and when you read love, you can put yourself there in that spot, okay? So, you can say love, in parentheses, does not act unbecomingly. It, referring to love, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, let's pause right there. All these things are things that love doesn't do. And you can read your name then before each one. You want to know what love looks like? Well, here's the things it won't do. If love's present, these things won't be present. Does not act unbecomingly. Aske moneo. Present, active, indicative. Again, which is the majority of these. We'll see. I'll, I'll note the few variations here and why that's important. This is what you could what could be called behavior ugliness. Okay, you just want to go to you know, put that in parentheses in the in the side margin of your Bible. Does not act unbecoming. That's behavior ugliness. Now, when you were a child, perhaps your parents would say, "Behave yourself." You ever hear your parents say that? Behave yourself. Now, that has a lot of interpretations based on what was appropriate for the situation, right? I mean, if you had company and your parents said, "Behave yourself," right? You knew that there were certain things you probably ought not to do. If you're if we say that to our kids, that means one of them is not running down stairs in their underwear, okay, or whatever that might happen. Just kind of, you know, i got to go to the bathroom, stripping off all your clothes and head for the bathroom. Behave yourself, all right? we got company. Uh, if, you, you know, if you're sitting in church, behave yourself. You know what that means. Uh, in, in particularly, I remember when I was a kid, we were sitting in church taking communion, and my brother and I are sitting next to each other. My mom leans over because we're, we're squeezing our, we've got the cup, and we're squeezing our cups. Because they flex. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Anybody notice that? The cups will flex. has liquid in them, but they'll flex a little bit. And so I'm sitting next to my brother, and it's full. Church is packed. And he's squeezing his, I'm squeezing mine, and my mom says, behave yourself. And right after that, my brother reached the point where it was no longer unbreakable. And it cracked like that. And communion juice went like, like that, up and over everybody, including us. That was not behaving ourselves as was appropriate in the situation. And we thought it was super funny. My dad and mom, not so much. So <laughs> behave yourself. It's situational, right? If you know, you're sitting in the backseat of the car with your sibling, behave yourself. You know what you have to do, right? It's no punching, no you know, pinching, stealing. You, know, you have kids. You know how this works. You know, that can be the idea here, too. A number of translations have love is not rude. And that would certainly be inside the definition. And so you can look at it this way. Whatever answer, whatever conduct, whatever you know, demeanor, 
whatever bearing, whatever appearance, whatever reaction that would be considered rude for the situation, love doesn't do that. The word is based on a root word, schema, which is the word form. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting word. It's where we get our word scheme. So the scheme of things. You can figure out how things work. Okay, that's the base, that's the root of that word. So it's a very all-encompassing word. The form of a person, if you would, which would be everything in a person which strikes the senses. So the figure, the bearing, the discourse, the actions, the manner of life. So it's very broad. In all of those things, there shouldn't be anything dishonorable, indecent, disgraceful, inappropriate. This observation comes a wide range. Here's a great word, and you might have that in there. Unseemliness. And of course, it's not by accident that Paul mentions this because in the Corinthians' treatment of each other during the fellowship dinner, in their callous behavior during, uh, concerning their freedom in Christ, in their disrespect of Paul, and, and on and on, see? Because later on in 1 Corinthians 14.40, 1 Corinthians 14.40 says this. Paul says, but all things must be done properly. There's our word right there. Properly and in an orderly manner. Properly is our word from verse 5. It's used as an adverb here. All these people were speaking over top of each other and they're interrupting each other in the service like we talked about last time. They'd meet together and everybody who had the gift of teaching would begin to teach and kind of stand up and interrupt each other. Obviously, um, you'd make a few points or I got something to say and so they'd just stand up and, and someone would stand up and start speaking some kind of ecstatic speech and, and then someone would try to interpret that and then, and then someone would stand up and have a revelation and somebody has a word of faith and then somebody has a true gift of tongues and nobody's interpreting it and then everyone wants an attention, everybody wants the floor and everybody with a different idea of what should happen, kind of doing their own thing, you know, fellowship dinner, they're eating in their little cliques and not paying attention to each other and, and they, they don't care about, you know, what someone thinks about their freedom in Christ and just kind of do it because if it feels good for me, that's all that matters. And that's the exact type of thing Paul's addressing here. That's the specific context of Paul's admonition in verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. And so he says, your form is inappropriate in the service. You want to know how to conduct yourself in the church? Do not act unbecomingly. Or love isn't rude. Because when, it, when you're acting unbecomingly, then love isn't there. So change your behavior. And then he tells them how, then, in, verse four, in chapter 14. If love is there, then your actions will be courteous, and your actions will be fitting, and your actions will be appropriate, and they'll be proper. If I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, then, I won't act unbecomingly. Otherwise, that'll be the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is absent. See. Now let's look at the next one. Love does not seek its own. That's the phrase. Love isn't self-centered. It doesn't try to figure out how to get its own way. It doesn't demand something from someone else. This was the point of Paul's commands in chapter 10, remember? As it relates to the activities inside the freedom of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I'll give you that up there just for a second if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 10, he says this, All things are lawful, remember this, but not all things are profitable. So in other words, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to bring you into condemnation, but there will be things that you allow in your life that don't bring you profit. Actually, they're going to rob from you. These are freedom in Christ things. These are the gray areas types of things. The Bible doesn't prohibit it nor command it. So it falls in this area where you can make this decision. It's, and, and just so that you know, you know it's, it's not freedom in Christ if it's forbidden in the scripture. Okay, and Just to make that clear. You don't have that freedom. Now, you, you're not under condemnation, but also you're walking in sinfulness. So all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. 
All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So all, nothing's going to bring you into condemnation, but not everything builds up. It has to do with how you, how you furnish a house. Not everything makes it lovely, okay? Let no one, verse 24, Paul says, seek, zeteo, that's our same word, okay? His own good. So that's where love's absent. So if we're seeking our own good, see, because love doesn't seek its own. That's what we just saw. Love's absent when we're seeking our own. Let no one seek his own good. So the absence of love, if you're just thinking about if it's good for you, that's not love. But that of his neighbor, this is where love's found. So seeking the good of those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now then 1 Corinthians 10.32 uses the word again, just so we can get a good foundation here. Paul says this, give no offense as you kind of evaluate your life and what you allow in your life. He says, give no offense either to Jew or to Greek. So if you consider yourself a strong believer and you have the right to have some freedoms in Christ that's neither forbidden uh, nor commanded in the scriptures, just remember there's a higher standard than what feels good to you. You're to give no offense. The onus is on you to make sure you don't offend anybody. Give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. So if what you do causes you to have to explain a hundred times why you allow it in your life and people have trouble with it, you're walking in sinfulness, okay? There's a higher standard than just what's good for you. So give no offense either to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things, here we go, not seeking zeteo, my own profit. If I'm just seeking what benefits me, that's not love, mark this, but the profit of the many. So when you rein your life in, so you don't have to explain to unbelievers and believers why you're doing what you're doing and what you're allowing in your life, and you're not being rude to unbelievers, then the prophet can be so that what? They may be saved. So there's a much higher standard, but once again, Paul says if love is there, then you're not going to be seeking your own anyway. Because love doesn't seek its own. So from the positive side, then, love is looking out for, becoming aware of, and acting on what's good for others. And so it interacts very well with love is kind, isn't it? It's interacting very well with that. Now let's look at the next verse. Paroxenatai, love is not provoked. Paroxenatai, present passive indicative. Now, this is interesting. The passive voice means that the subject's being acted on by an outside force. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Love is not provoked. So an outside force acting on you. So this is not directly emanating from you, but your response to it is important. So put yourself in this statement and ask yourself these questions. Are you easily aggravated? Do you have a short fuse? Are you exasperated quickly? Because that's called being provoked. That's the idea. Paroxetai. That's the opposite of patience. Patience, long-suffering is where love lives. And catch this. What's being done to you may be wrong. Okay? What someone's doing to you may be wrong. They may have offended you. They may do something that, from your perspective at least, and perhaps from everybody's perspective, what they're doing is wrong. Okay? But that's not the at issue here, isn't it? Some verses say it this way. Love is not easily angered. I don't think that's exactly the capture because it just says love is not provoked and it's not easily provoked so there's no indication that that's the case phillips calls it love is not touchy that'll work love's not touchy so then mark this love can rule out what gets on your nerves by patience you understand 
So what would normally get on your nerves, love can rule out, because your response is long-suffering or patience. And love can overrule your fleshly reactions, because it isn't provoked. Understand? If I'm going to be useful for the kingdom, then, I'm not going to be touchy or be able to be provoked. Otherwise, that'll be the evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is absent. And the sum of my work is zero, and I'm building with wood and hay and straw. So let's just kind of sum up all of that stuff, because they all interact with one another. That has to do with the kind of work that we do. What is the attitude as we do the work? And love is that defining factor. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.12. He says, so, this is a great verse. You should memorize it. We've memorized it. A number of us in our family have memorized it over and over again. Paul says this, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Okay, who is he talking to? You are. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to believers. Okay, you are chosen of God and you are positionally holy and unconditionally loved. That is you. That defines you. That's one of the wonderful definitions of what it means to be a believer. What The definition of a believer in the scriptures. There's dozens of them. We go through them in the Be the Church class, a number of them. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, what response then should that evoke from us, beloved? If you know that you are chosen, holy and beloved, how do you respond initially? What, what would be the first thing that you think about? So if you're reading through your Bible, and you're doing your quiet time, and you come to this passage, what would be your response if you're interacting with the scripture? Thankfulness? Thank you, Lord, for that. Right? As you read through your Bible, that's how you interact. You, you know that. It, as you're reading your scriptures on a day-to-day basis, you want to make a difference in your life? That you interact with that kind of stuff. Wow. My first response is thankfulness and humility and some other things, see? So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Why? Well, because someone will offend you. Someone will hurt your feelings. Someone will do something that makes you feel badly. Okay? There's no question that's going to happen. We're as diverse a group as any group on the face of the planet. And undoubtedly, you're going to be offended. Somebody's going to hurt your feelings. Somebody's going to do something that's going to make you feel badly. Okay? So, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, present, active, indicative, all those. This is how you're supposed to look. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Here it is. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Let's just get as broad as we possibly can. Whatever your complaint may be, whatever got done to you, whether you perceived it in a way that was very negative or whether it was negative, and they were doing it in a very antagonistic way, it's irrelevant because he just says this. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, anybody on either side of the hurt or the receiving of the hurt, doesn't matter. Okay? That's a pretty broad stroke. And here's the bar. What's the bar? Just as the Father forgave you, so also should you. That puts the bar way up there, doesn't it? Well, they didn't ask forgiveness. Well, did you know that your sins are forgiven all day, every day? And every future sin you'll ever commit is already under the blood. Did you know that? Just as the Father has forgiven you, so also should you. See? And that takes us right in into the, to the illustration of what love looks like when it's there. Love does not take into account 
a wrong suffered. Logizatai. You've probably heard of a derivative of that verb, haven't you? It's present middle indicative. Take into account, a form of this word is used by Paul to describe how God reckons righteousness to a believer. Logizomai. Now, the word's connected with the keeping of accounts and making a note of something and keeping track of it or calculating up what's owed or what was paid or what's done. has to do with logs and those people who are in accounting. You understand this, how this all works and how it balances out and what's taken in, what goes out, and how it all balances at the end. That's the idea, okay? So the issue here is when love is present, it doesn't keep an account of all the wrongs things that people do. And it goes very well with the previous one, doesn't it? It's not provoked. And it doesn't keep an account either. So you, maybe you didn't respond negatively to something that was done, but you certainly violated whoever has a complaint against anyone you're supposed to forgive. But say you do that. Now you get to this next one, okay? Well, I'm not going to say anything, but man, I'm so tired of this, and it's happened so long and so many times. Okay, well, now you're running afoul of this one. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. So the issue here is this. When love is present, it doesn't add it all up. So just put your name in this very difficult to do, but not understand passage. Because if love is there in your life, you are not keeping records of offenses and hurts and slights and misunderstandings and anything else people around you do to you. Love takes no account of evil. It doesn't harbor a sense of injury. Like David in Psalm 32, 1. You want to see the Hebrew equivalent? Here it is. He recognizes the forgiveness of the Lord, and he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, there's our word, iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the Hebrew equivalent. God doesn't keep track of sins. He's forgiven. And because you're supposed to forgive all day, every day, and so am I, because that's how the Lord forgives us, then this applies, doesn't it? And then he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's not double-handling it. He's not saying one thing and thinking another. He doesn't impute iniquity, and he's not still thinking about it either. Because if he's forgiven you once, you're forgiven. And that's a marvelous place to be, isn't it? Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, we looked at this before, and I told you we were going to get to it because we haven't broken it down, but I think it's super important then to come back to 1 Peter 4, 8, because Peter says, above all, and so above everything else we could do, now look at it because it goes right together with this not keeping record of wrong and not being provoked and all those kinds of things. But verse 8 says this, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers, calypte, that's present active indicative, it means to cover or hide or hinder the knowledge of a thing. Love covers. So in other words, in that command, which is the reality of the believer, which this is the base of all proper functioning in the church, love, love, keep fervent in it because love covers, it hides, it hinders the knowledge of a thing, that's the reality of the believer, all of your life, all day, every day. It covers a multitude, that's plethos, it just means the full measure of something. To the fullest, if you will, the fullest amount, whatever that is. Love covers a multitude of sins. 
Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you think you can do in the church. If you're holding on to offenses and hurts and slights and whatever, then love is absent. Let's just be clear. And what you're doing then in the church accounts for nothing. You're building with wood, hay, and straw instead of gold, silver, and costly stone. And you come up with a big fat zero at the end of your time. That's pretty deep, isn't it? Let's look at this eighth activity of love, an indicator that love is present. It's presented from the negative, beginning verse 6. Look there, if you would. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There's this old newspaper adage, good news doesn't sell newspapers, right? Or get hits on websites. What's the good news about bad news? Well, it sells, and you can put a lot of advertising all around the border of that site. In other words, Paul says, love takes no joy in evil of any kind. But we can certainly find ourselves doing that through what we read and what we watch and what we listen to. In our coarse jesting, in our joking, we can show that love is absent, see? Because it's taking delight in unrighteousness. Coarse jesting, uh, bad jokes, all that kind of stuff. See, that's rejoicing in unrighteousness. There's another way we can rejoice in unrighteousness. This is, this is I think, probably the one that at least I fail the most on. We have a seriously impaired ability to judge the culpability of people. What do I mean by that? We are impatient. We want people on our timeline, or we give them over to judgment, and we're all too many times delighted that it occurred. And if you watch what goes on in the Middle East, and you watch what goes on in our country, and you see some judgment come, and it's, it's very, it's very, I don't know, feels good to delight in wickedness and delight in evil. And there's a good illustration, I think, that helps us get the balance here, because maybe you're wondering, well, what, what does that mean exactly? And this is the difference between God's attitude, typically, and our attitude as it relates to judgment that falls on people. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse, verse uh, 23 says this, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And what's the implied answer? No. Rather, that he should turn from his ways and live. Ezekiel 18, 30-32 just really confirms that even more. As he speaks to Israel, he's certainly looking at a house that needs judgment. He's looking at a house that's fallen into sin, a house that's in idolatry, a house that's turned from him. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct. And the Lord has the right, as a sovereign of the universe, to do just that. He keeps perfect records. He understands the sinfulness of people. And if they haven't sought him in repentance, then that is stored up wrath to, uh, going to be poured out on them. He says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct. I know what you've done, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that your iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. So he gives them the remedy. Repent. Verse 31, cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. You see? See the difference between our seriously impaired ability to judge the culpability of people and we are quick to go to judgment. We're quick to render it and say that it was, a, it was appropriate. We have a very difficult time managing that. And even the Lord's not happy about when people have to be put to death, when people die. 
He's got no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Anyone. See? So when love is there, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness in whatever form that takes, whether it is you're going to uh, think, watching things or listening to things that are exalting unrighteousness, or whether it is your own sense of self-righteousness and, uh, and casting judgment on other people and other lands and other faiths and whatever it is, see, and rejoicing in all that kind of stuff. Love, love isn't there when that happens. See? So put your name here. When you don't take delight in evil, then love is there. And just as a footnote, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul doesn't rehash the bad behavior of the church again right here. He could. He could say, and for instance, this is what I'm talking about. And then he go back and kind of pull up a history lesson. He doesn't do it. He doesn't point out their selfish behavior and say, you know, you're so self-centered. And love doesn't seek its own. He doesn't say that. He doesn't rehash the boasting in sensuality that was part of the, in the church in chapter 5 and say, you know, doesn't, love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Instead, he just lets them put themselves in the commands. Love doesn't act rudely. Love isn't self-centered. Love doesn't have a short fuse. Love doesn't keep a logbook and memories of bad things people have done to them. Love doesn't rejoice in evil of any kind. He just puts it out there, see? That's Paul as a shepherd putting it out there and saying, okay, this is what it's supposed to look like. And clearly the Corinthians have been doing precisely these things, see? He's already reproved them for their actions, and now Paul's pointing to the way to transforming the mind by teaching them to yield the members of their body to works of righteousness, like we saw in Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 13. In fact, I'd like you to turn there. We've got, I didn't know if we'd have time. We do have time. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Will you do that? Because all these things that he's talking about here, these are all sinful behaviors. And if you're honest, some of them really dominate you. Holding on to hurts, following up with every offense, cherishing our short fuse, cherishing our ability to articulate our irritation clearly to someone else. We hang on to that. That's all sinful behavior. We're consumed with ourselves, what works best for us, how we can have our own way, what we can, how we can do what we want to do, regardless of how it affects someone else. And we're good at being rude, and we don't care what people think about it, and we rejoice in death and the destruction or immorality, and we think we've judged it all correctly. Not only do they betray an absence of spiritual fruit, particularly Paul's emphasis on the fruit of love, but they're sinful behaviors that seem to rule us just like a king. Maybe that's been your experience. Just a really short fuse all your life, or you, you're really good at hanging on to every single offense that anybody's ever done, or perceived offense. Because you're not always right, you know, with the offense. Sometimes it's perceived. Sometimes the other person is right. Okay. So just be clear, you're just hanging on to it. That's all we're talking about. We're talking about your personal attitude, my personal attitude, how we respond. But it doesn't have to be that way. And again, you can't just pull new behavior out of your hat. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not hanging on. No more history lesson. When my husband does something else, I'm not giving him another history lesson for everything he's done the last eight years of exactly like that, okay? Or when my wife does this thing, I'm not going to come back and say, you have been doing that forever. You have said that to me so many times. I'm so irritated about that. See, it just dominates us. We've got a really short fuse. And it doesn't take much for somebody to cut you off on Gray's Mill trying to get on the freeway. And there's like two feet between you and the car in front of you and everybody's in the fast lane and they cut in at the last minute. How many go through that every single, every single day? Yeah, Monday through Friday, me too. Got a really short fuse. Doesn't take you long to articulate everything about them. You just read a few bumper stickers on the back and you've got a full sentence of ripping them to pieces. 
See, those rule us like a king. And you can't pull the behavior out of your hat. So look at Romans chapter 6, verse 12. And here Paul says this. Now he's gone through that you've died with Christ and you've raised. And there's a new you alive. And we've talked about all this, and I'm not going to go back through it. Okay, I think you remember this. So he says, therefore, so in light of everything we've talked about, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Don't let it reign. Now, when Paul says don't let it, that implies that it what? Could be. And I think you understand, you know, the body is the only place sin can operate. Why? Because that the real you, the real self, is holy. Now, if you're born again, and the only part of you that's not been changed and glorified is your body, and you're still waiting on that. And that includes your emotions, where your brain functions, all the, all the kinds of things that you have to deal with on a daily basis. And that's why we have that struggle in Romans 7. I, w- I want the right things. That's coming from the real me. But my body is a problem for me. See, we, we have a problem, don't we? And that's the whole short fuse thing, and that's the holding on to offenses thing, and, and, and articulating your irritation towards other people thing. That's all your body, okay? Paul says, Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable service of worship. And don't be transformed, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this whole thing that has to go on with your thought processes, with your body. We talked about this every, every single time we end these passages. The last three Sundays, I've given you some, some ways that you can begin to get on top of this, okay? Because this is the way I have to work too. So it's a real struggle. I want the right things. But my body's a problem to me. The members of my body cause me trouble. The body has Paul's words, its lusts, its desires, its self-centeredness, its anger, its jealousies, its arrogances, its attractions to evil things. And they all cry out for fulfillment because they're used to being fulfilled with the old you, with the you that was aligned with Adam, and your body got along perfectly. There was no discord there because whatever old Adam wanted, the body was more than happy to accommodate it. But now you've got a battle going on. So the body's where it's coming from. Your brain, your thinking processes, all part of that. So what it says is, sin will reign if you let it. So if you pamper the body then, if you entice the body, if you entertain the body, if you make excuses for the behavior, whatever the, well, he did offend me, or, you know, she did say that, or, you know, they deserve to have a piece of my mind, or whatever it is, okay? Just, you make excuses. As long as as you keep making excuses, you're not fixing this issue. Holy Spirit's there with the resources you need because you can't do it on your own. Not pulling this out of your hat, but you keep suppressing the spirit because you keep making excuses. You're going to have a problem because it's the body with all its sensory factors that when they're open to the elements of the world become this channel through which temptation can draw you into sin. And if you're just kind of feeding it whatever from the world all the time, then don't be surprised if that's the reaction. That's what's coming back out of you, okay? And sin can reign over you like a king if you don't deal with it. And it'd like to do just that, but it doesn't have to because Paul says don't let it, which means your will, again, has to be set in motion. Your will is a key factor, exactly like we've been talking about. Love's response is a response of the volition. But you can only be successful in it because the Holy Spirit is there to empower that movement. Okay, You're not doing it on your own, but the will is a key factor. Volition pays a part. Because God's commands are for us, not for him. Okay? So there's obviously an, an engaging you have to do. And that's what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13. Now, if you want some, some uh, parallel passages and you can see them in your notes, I would jot a few things down here. But these are important. These can help you. Here's what Paul says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds a little bit like volition, doesn't it? 
to put your mind to it, to begin to act on these things God has said to do. For it is God who is at work in you. That's the only way you can be successful anyway, through his Holy Spirit, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not all mystical, okay? It's not, you know, just let go and let God. It will only come to the surface when your will is activated in accordance with his. The Holy Spirit is residing in you in power, and your will is interacting in accordance with his will. And then you see success. But mark this, holiness in behavior is not a sudden, instantaneous thing. It's a way of life, and you fight it all the way along. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your, what? Bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Don't don't tune out right here. This This is where the rubber meets the road. If you want to have some victory over these areas of your life, this is where it's going to happen, okay? So this is why it's easy for Satan to distract you at this point. And you start kind of daydreaming and you're not thinking about, this is where it's going to happen. You want, you want things to go better in your marriage? You want things to go better with your children? Children, you want things to go better with your parents? This is where it's going to happen right here, okay? You want things to work in unity in the ministry that you're over or the things that you, you minister in? These have to be here, see? And some things have to be absent. And this is the way it's going to happen. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and make it my slave. Sounds like you have some things you have to do in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have some areas where you have to recognize this is not how I should be responding, and I'm not going to do that anymore, and I'm going to start memorizing some scripture that has to do with that, and I'm going to replace those thoughts with the new ones, see? I beat it into submission because it's the body that's the problem, and as long as you're in the body, you're going to have problems. Those are Paul's terms for the struggle. Your will is obviously the issue here, and your thought process has to be changed through time in the Word. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Submit to the Holy Spirit instead of, like the control that wine would have over you, instead let the Holy Spirit control you. All exactly the same thing, beloved. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in accordance to its lust. So empowered by the Holy Spirit and letting the word dwell in you richly gives you the resources you need to make no provision. See? Another way to say it from Galatians 5.16. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jealous desires, arrogance, keeping accounts of offenses, short fuse, they all cry out for fulfillment. They indicate the absence of spiritual fruit, and they make the spiritual gifting operate in the flesh, and they have as an outcome a big zero. So that should be your motivation. And you're building with wood and hay and straw, which everybody's going to see, and it's all going to be tried by fire. That's great motivation, isn't it? But we want to get on top of these things. And as we said last time, we want to have some consistency. So Paul says, Romans chapter 6, verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body, that's your your faculties, your organs, your body parts, thoughts, reason, imagination, all that's part of your flesh, all that's corruptible. Don't yield to that. Don't present that to sin as instruments, a hoplon, used to refer to tools to prepare something. Don't present those things to be used as tools. Of unrighteousness. Sins presented as a king, 
The king wants to use our bodies to prepare unrighteousness, to shape unrighteousness in our families, in our church, in our world, by all these things we just talked about. Where love is absent, you just see all these types of things. Don't let Satan be a king who collects tools to shape around you, your family, all that kind of stuff, okay? But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. Beloved, that's always the substance. That's your identity. Again, as we saw earlier, your name. Here's another one. You're alive from the dead. It describes you as a believer. And the members, that's the parts of your body, same as before, your thought, your reason, your imagination, all that's your flesh, your voice, your attitude, your sense of justice, you're holding on to whatever, see, present all those things as instruments, as tools, of righteousness to God. You've got to substitute the bad attitudes for the good ones. And the good ones will be there when you are walking in the Spirit, when you're putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You're not going to pull out these attitudes of love out of your hat. It's not going to be some instantaneous generation of the right attitude. This is a fight all the way along. And I, I, I don't think I'm telling you something that's, that's new. Perhaps you're just not engaging it enough. Maybe you are. But it's going to be an engagement constantly of you being in the Word. You're not going to survive and be able to profit for the, for the kingdom and be able to do things that matter until that's the, the substance of your life, see? Paul wraps it up in verse 14, and so do we. It says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Law and sin go together, because the law comes to show us, to set a standard for our sin. The law commands, the law demands, the law rebukes. It uh, condemns, but the law cannot conquer sin, either in penalty or power. See, people come out of legalistic environments in their backgrounds in church, and it just they have an outward conformity, but inside, holding on to offenses, all the problems that are all part of the inner man, they haven't been changed at all. See, law doesn't do that. Grace does that. See, law only increases our bondage, just showing us the sinfulness of sin and the utter inability of a man to do what's right. The law condemns the sinner. It calls for a penalty. With no ability to deliver the victim. You're not under that. You're under grace. You and grace go together, see? You receive grace, give grace. And grace encompasses all the mercy of God and salvation. And in grace, love can grow into action, see? Love diffuses the short fuse. Love reacts to irritating things with patience. Love makes a habit of doing kind deeds to people. Love throws away the list of offenses. That's what love does. In action with your will by the power of the Holy Spirit, it throws away the list of offenses. Did you know you can do that? Right now. Whatever it is, between you and your wife, uh, you and your husband, you and your children, children and parents, church members between each other, whatever it is, you can throw that list away. Did you know that? Right now you can do it. You have the Holy Spirit's power in you if you're truly a believer. And if you want to operate in love, you're going to have to do it. Otherwise, you you understand what the outcome will be of your ministry, regardless of how long it will be. See? Biblical love is based on the will. To love somebody in terms of an act of self-sacrifice. It's not a feeling. It's a determination that you make in your mind. In other words, this is what God's told me to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And you can do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the Word of Christ, dwelling in you richly. Just a few more practical applications. I just wanted you to write a few more things down. One of these may be super helpful, and they may cause you to have that victory and push you over into that victory. Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is almost gone. The day is near. 
Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Lay them aside, beloved. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. That's a volitional act through the power of the Holy Spirit to put away those things, you see. To lay aside the deeds of darkness, lie aside every encumbrance and the sin which easily entangles us. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.18 Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Flee immorality. That's a volitional act, isn't it? Lord, keep me from immorality. Okay, flee immorality. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be kept from immorality, whatever that might be. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. There's a lot of great interaction that can go on between believers. It can be very effective in helping us. That's the way to no victory, beloved. There, that's the way to consistency, you see. That's the way to true change, where love is the action and love is the reaction. And I tell you that, not in a vacuum, but from the heart of a man who has to put these to work in my life every single day. There isn't a day that goes by that there isn't some interaction with these verses and my attitude and my evaluation of how I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. I've given you enough, I think, to chew on. Lord, I thank you today for a time in your word. Thank you for the believers who are here today and um, ministering to one another, encouraging one another. For all the Sunday school teachers and children's church teachers downstairs, thank you for their sacrifice and for Sunday school earlier, for those who stepped up and taught in absence of other people and for those who, who were here teaching our kids. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the work of the ministry that's being done. Obviously, spiritual gifting is here we lack no gift. Lord, I just pray now as we do these things, that we'll be doing them in such a way that you're able to build on the foundation of Christ with our actions, gold and silver and costly stone, something that will endure the test of fire that occurs to be of judgment. I pray also too, Father, that we won't have lived up, uh, live our life out doing ministry in the church for however long in where some of these things are there, where we're holding on to hurts, we're easily provoked, or whatever it might be, where we're really adding up to nothing at the core, at the end of all of that. Really finding the thing to do in the church is perhaps less important than realizing that what you've been doing didn't matter because we didn't do it with the right heart attitude. So Lord, I pray that we'll seek your word again this week as we always encourage our beloved to do. Help us all to be in your word every day, knowing that this is where we are able to transform our mind and not be conformed to the world and be able to change how we think, which is going to change what we do, that we might be able to move in the direction of towards love. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the clear presentation of it. We thank you for the volition that must be it must be part of the Holy Spirit's work that we move with our own will in the direction of your will. And the Holy Spirit is more than happy to empower us to do the very things we desire. Help us to make that our daily battle.
to regularly engage these hidden sins, the camouflage things, the things that we've just assumed were okay. Help us to evaluate these things in light of what we know from your word, in light of what love does and doesn't do, and the reactions and the interactions that it does. And we give you praise today because we desire to be a pure church, one that operates as you would have us do, in such a way that you are pleased with the way our body works together. Your son's body physically on earth doing the work of the ministry for the sake of the kingdom. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.